0: Expect to learn a new way. Each week, you'll hear trainings, listen in on mini coaching sessions from people on your same path, and learn from other guest professionals. I'm so glad you've joined me. As we head into our episode today, a quick trigger warning. Our wonderful guest has overcome quite a bit in order to heal her relationship to food, And there are mentions of suicidal ideations, anxiety, depression, sexual abuse, and self-harm. Hey there, welcome back to the Align Nutrition Podcast. Today, I am joined by Julia. Julia and I worked together for quite a period of time this year, starting at the beginning of the pandemic, really. Well, no, did we start before that? No, May. It
1: It was was... May. So, yeah.
0: Yep. Yep. It was. Well, welcome to the podcast. And thank you so much for hopping in and being willing to share your story. I know you and I have talked offline quite a bit where there's just not enough conversations about like what actually it's like to recover from an eating disorder, what it's like to overcome something, especially when it comes to anxiety, trauma, sexuality, and a lot of the this like access to care. And I wanted to, yeah, just really share different perspectives. And I know that a lot of people relate to it. So thank you for being here.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on here. I really appreciate it. I think it'll be good. Me too. Well, talk to me about
0: when things started for you. When did things become stressful around eating? And what was that like?
1: Yeah, so I mean, that's kind of a loaded question. (laughs) More of like when were were things not stressful with eating? Like age of three, toddler years. (laughs) So... (laughs) But really what I think, if I could pinpoint it, like the start of feeling like a ton of like distress around my body, and then that linking to then distress around food was probably like around the age of 10 or 11. So right around puberty, middle school. And for the longest time, like I kind of just contributed it to like, oh, that's, you know, like, that's what middle school girls go through all those things. But you know, through working with a trauma therapist, I realized, so I experienced sexual abuse starting around the age of four for several years. And having my body change during puberty was a huge trauma trigger for me that I didn't even realize. It kind of triggered again, that feeling like this body's not mine. This body's not something I have control over. um, And that manifested itself in you know, body distress, struggling with body image. And so there was always anxiety around food. There was from that time, there was always, you know, like body checking, things like that, feeling really insecure in my body. But I would say it didn't really become like a full fledged eating disorder until my junior, senior year of high school. And that was because I had started seeing a therapist and of course I wasn't talking to her about my discomfort with my body or food, <laughs> keeping that part hidden. But I had been struggling with self-harm. I was struggling with anxiety and depression, suicidal ideation and self-harm. And it got to a point where she's like, I think we need to bring mom and dad in on this. So self-harm was something I had struggled with since the age of 14. And I kept it very well hidden. It was another aspect of, you know, self-punishment and control. And so when all of a sudden this huge secret was out in the open, I just felt completely out of control again. And that's when it really manifested into an eating disorder. So I was, yeah, it was kind of, yeah, it wasn't like one instance of like, oh, now I have an eating disorder. It was very, I think there were a lot of things building up to this final, like, now it has become this full blown problem in my life. Mm -hmm.
0: And I think you bring up something that I know was really important when we were working together was really this idea that anxiety and not feeling like your body was yours was a huge part of your life. Like it was it was a theme, it was something. Mm-hmm. And when we look at eating disorders from a neurobiological standpoint, it's an anxiety disorder that has attached itself to food. And as you described this progression of like, I had all of these safety mechanisms, all of these coping skills that helped me be okay to deal with what happened to me. And when one of them was taken away, then I had to grab harder onto another. And that's Mm -hmm. where the food piece became something that you were clinging to, to manage the discomfort that you were feeling in your body, the racing thoughts, all of the things that were happening.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, at that point, at the age of 17, I hadn't told anyone about what had happened to me. I hadn't really accepted the trauma myself. So I wasn't getting to the root of the issue. So as soon as one... Coping mechanism, safety mechanism was taken away. I I had to find another one to stay alive. Like that was really just my reality. No matter how maladaptive or I always say, like ironically, even though I believe you know my eating disorder was slowly killing me, I think it did keep me alive. It um, served a purpose in terms of suicidality and you know finding a way to just stay on this earth somehow i couldn't just be i had to you know be doing something to cope with it
0: yeah oh absolutely and i i know you and i have talked a lot too about kind of this idea of really eating disorders are about our culture and the beliefs that we inherit from our society making sure that you're fitting the thin ideal and all of the things that go along with that but also trauma is a huge predictor co-occurring anxiety, depression, suicide ideations, those all really go hand in hand. And I think for you, you were like, Hey, I wasn't really dieting. And yet kind of like emergence of maybe how I'm eating and how I'm feeling about my body. Maybe it's in response to something. Maybe there's, you know, kind of going on here. How did it come to be for you that you knew food was starting to become an issue? Were you feeling unwell? Were you
1: thinking about food all the time? What was that? Yeah, so I think I can. I have a distinct memory of kind of like a, oh shit moment where I had just moved away to school my freshman year and there wasn't a scale there. So I couldn't, because that was a huge part in high school of my eating disorder was remaining a certain weight. It was a very much like almost obsessive compulsive of like, I have to be this certain weight. So I would be weighing myself multiple times a day, you know, I'd obsessively calculate my BMI throughout the day. And when I moved away to school, there was no scale. And yet, I was still so anxious around food, and still had the whole control piece of food in my body. And I remember, at the time, I was a part of a clinical trial for transcranial magnetic stimulation, and people under the age of 21. And so, you know, they recommended taking Advil or something like that to help with the tapping on your head that can give you headaches. And I remember my mom telling me on the phone with her before going to a session, like, oh, make sure like you eat something before taking the Advil because it's kind of hard on your stomach. And I remember being like, in my head, like, I'm afraid to eat this granola bar. Like I'm I'm having like an anxious response to eating this granola bar. And that combination of restricting and taking Advil led to me developing stomach ulcers a month into my freshman year. It is by far the worst physical pain I've ever been in, so much so to the point that I had to drop out out of one month and see a GI specialist, you know, have a couple procedures to see what was going on. And being in that physical pain kind of Started recovery for me not in a way of I directly tied it to like oh I wasn't eating enough in this comp and being an anxious person because anxiety can cause you to produce more stomach acid so it's definitely this perfect storm and I didn't I always at the time I contributed to the Advil I'm never taking Advil again oh my gosh but the pain was so excruciating that not having any food in my stomach made the pain so much worse because then it was just stomach acid oh on a, God. on a raw stomach. Yes. Oh my gosh. So, you know, that was food became like a part of my treatment in terms of that, you know, it was very, oh my God, it was like the most ridiculous schedule to follow up because I had to drink, <laughs> oh my God, I had to drink this stuff that I can only explain as like, if you mix chalk and water and it was like acting as my stomach lining. And like, there are all these rules of like, We have to take it like this amount before eating or this amount after, but then also don't have an empty stomach ever. So, I mean, but it became like, it was literally a part of the process to healing my stomach. And I think getting me out of that energy deficit kind of kicked some of the disordered thoughts. And, you know, I went on to then previously in high school, I'd been hospitalized twice for suicidal ideation. And then when I dropped out of school, I was hospitalized again for suicidal ideation and went on to do a general mental health, PHP and IOP program. And, you know, it helped me a ton with my anxiety and depression. And that was actually, you know, the first place I talked about my trauma. And I was starting for the first time in my life to feel like I could breathe. Like I was starting to feel like, okay, with being alive. And I realized I can't keep doing this stuff with food if I want to actually feel better. Like it was just, I had gotten to a point where like, I knew it was wrong. I knew it was unhealthy and I couldn't fool myself anymore. And I was ready to start talking about things. And, you know, I think that was what was really significant was like, I was ready to talk about it. Yeah. That's when, you know, I started to get help.
0: Absolutely. And I think it strikes me as, well, really quickly, I'll say, in case anyone doesn't know, a PHP and an IOP program, it's basically an intensive outpatient program where you're there. Most of the day, and you're in a hospital and you're getting support from potentially dietitians, therapists, psychiatrists, and you're really having that kind of group setting, that support to really, you know, whether it's getting on a good medication cocktail or in your case as well, like really being able to have the space of, Oh my gosh, I guess all of this stuff that I was sort of aware of and then sort of not aware of. And then like anyone that I've worked with that has trauma, like you, it's like stuff just keeps kind of coming out, these memories Mm -hmm. and things start to unfold and the more you realize it it starts to make sense like, oh my gosh right. so, like for you you equally needed to unpack some of that and open it up and have awareness have number 1 support and treatment for trauma to be able to even consider letting go of some of those coping skills continue on the path of of healing your body as it related to you know the damage that it suffered from from malnutrition and and the medication use mhm Absolutely. Yeah. And your experience minus the, you know, repair of stomach lining because of the medication is exactly what a lot of people go through in terms of healing your body. You're eating frequently. You're seeing how food can, like you said, reverse that energy deficit. We know that the deeper someone's going into an energy deficit, it tends to increase their anxiety, that noise around eating. So as I hear you retell this, even though I knew it about you, it's like, oh my gosh, like, how hard must have that have been? You were like spiraling and you didn't even know why things were getting worse and you were just trying to make it better. And here you were receiving this treatment for other issues. And then, you know, the food piece, like, hey, well, now I have your attention. <laughs> right,
1: right, exactly. Because like before in my treatment, well, because I, I'm really, I'm really, really good at presenting myself as okay. So it took me a long time to tell my parents I needed help. So by the time I told my parents, I was already like at a crisis point. So like my first experience with counseling and psychiatrists and all of that was just trying to get me stabilized, was trying to get like the depression and self-harm under control, the suicidal ideation under control. Like that was like their main focus. And so it wasn't until like I finally was able to cope with those things that like I was like, oh, why is this food stuff still here? Like, why isn't it just gone? Like I thought maybe it would just go away without me having to talk about it.
0: Totally. You're like, let's revisit that granola bar again.
1: Right.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, and I know when we started working together, you had, because of the stress of the pandemic, like you got to an amazing place. Like you did so much treatment. You took so much care. You worked so hard to really get to this awesome place of being okay and continuing to discover who you are and what you're like outside of this experience that really impacted you so much in your life and things had really just kind of started to slip at the beginning of the pandemic and i think you were kind of re almost like whenever i think of you I, you are that type of person that you get sick of your own stuff and you're just calling <laughs> yourself out you're like i'm done with this so no. i need to move on and you just put your head down and and do it and so i feel like how you described that earlier is kind of where you got at the pandemic you kind of called me up and you're like all right I'm this far into recovery. Everything in my being is telling me to go back and I know I don't want to, but what do we do here?
1: Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I do. I get, I remember there was one session where you were asking me like, well, like what, what has changed since we last talked? And I was like, I'm tired of my own bullshit. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I've reached my max with it. Like (laughs) I can't keep buying into this anymore. Yes, I am a very headstrong, stubborn person, which has been a downfall in treatment, and also like my greatest aid. Depends on the mood I'm in, depending like what's going on that day.
0: No, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because I I think that that's how a lot of our characteristics are. Like I believe it's Carolyn Costin talks about our personality traits, like your headstrong and this is also like tenacity and determination like it's kind of this like asset liability like this can mm-hmm. work really well for me or it can maybe hold me back and I think you've been a- good at being able to lean into both sides
1: of those things <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, yeah because I for people listening just to be clear I did not call up Erica and was like so ready I'm just <laughs> sure I sat there the first session like arms crossed and I'm like yeah, I mean, like I figured I'd try this. I don't really know if I want to change. I was like, nah, I don't know. For Eric, I was like, okay, well, <laughs> you have this amount of time. You did give me a time frame. You're like, well, you have this amount of time to start getting some of this under control if I'm going to keep seeing you. And I was like, well, okay, fine.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, and I think where you were at is was really common. Where when we talk about eating disorders. What a lot of people don't know is that like atypical anorexia or other specified feeding and eating disorders, this kind of like, you're not classically, oh, you know, I experience these bulimic symptoms this time per week, or, oh, I'm classically (laughs) defined as somebody with anorexia nervosia. Like a lot of people really kind of have these, you know, really mixed bag of experiences and they're all serious. And so I think for you, you were like, well, I'm not okay. But I'm also not that. So I don't really right. know what to do here. And I think I think that, that can also limit access to care as well. Like, I'm so glad that you did have a moment where you did decide to call me and work with me because you could have easily just been like, you know, well, let me just keep puttering
1: mm-hmm. along at this. Right. Yeah. There's no way to tell. I mean, I could have honestly, like, you know, my symptoms, my behaviors could have eventually impacted me incredibly bad to the point of something devastating. Or in all honesty, with how I was doing, I could have continued that for years and years and years. But the the matter of the fact was I was miserable. I was absolutely miserable. And it was, it was really hard to fight against the thoughts of, you know, not being sick enough or oh, I have to I have to let it get worse. And you know, in high school, my psychiatrist, you know, had reinforced those beliefs. He had noticed some issues with my growth charts. And that, you know, they were stalled and I should have been growing more. And, you know, I had expressed some discomfort and anxiety around my body. And I think he meant it as like something that would be comforting. But he told me if things with food ever become worse, we have a great eating disorder program here. And I kind of took that and ran with it. I took it as like this. This is it. This is finally the behavior I can use and get away with. And I think that's also what kind of started that obsession with remaining a certain weight. Because I was like, if I say this, it's not going to raise a ton of red flags. And, you know, because again, that time of my life, I, was, I felt so out of control. You know, all of a sudden, everyone knew everything. And so, you know, I was like hell bent on finding something. You know, those words, though, they definitely, they stuck around with me to the point where it made it really hard to get help. And it it made it hard to let go of some things
0: too. Absolutely. And like, if we're thinking of other areas of medical care or psychiatry, like that typically wouldn't be the model, right? Of like, oh, we'll just watch it and see if it gets bad enough and then we'll we'll treat it. And so, yeah, that fit like a glove for you. Like, oh, I can just fly under the radar. I can still use my coping skills, which is restricting food intake and, you know, working through Mm -hmm. some of that stuff yet not be, you know, have it flagged, like with the self-harm, you know, earlier on. And how did you, you, but you're right. It's, it's a miserable place to be. And I'm wondering, like, how did you, like when we were working together, like, how did you start to move through and decide, okay, well, I'm never really going to feel sick enough. Really. I don't want to end up in the hospital, but I also, I don't know, like, how did you decide to change? And like, where did you start?
1: Yeah. I mean, The first step was deciding to get help and kind of, you know, I think it was honestly definitely like just opposite action. Like, I'm just going to do this even though I don't really want to because I know that I need to. And then a lot of what motivated me was my future and not wanting to have to carry this around. And, you know, I wanted to be free from it. And, you know, I think the biggest part was I had to sit in the hurt of having been not rejected, but, you know, my pain kind of not being taken seriously in the past. And, you know, I had to learn that I had to heal that. No one else was going to heal that. And, you know, I discovered when talking through all of it with my therapist one session that it mimicked a lot of the hurt that I felt from being sexually abused and no one saving me from it. Obviously, the sexual abuse was much greater, much more traumatizing wound. But it was, it felt like repeating this cycle of like, maybe I deserve to have been hurt. Maybe I deserve to have been feeling miserable because, you know, if it was bad enough, if I didn't deserve it, someone would have stepped in. I think those thoughts mirrored each other. Like the, I had those thoughts of the sexual abuse, I had those thoughts in relation to that conversation with my psychiatrist. And this desire to get thicker almost felt like, you know, my younger self. Or, you know, just this wounded part of me being like, maybe if I get sick enough, someone will save me. And that wound of having not been protected from the sexual abuse will be healed. And, you know, I had to sit with it and realize like that, that wasn't going to fix anything. You know, I can, I could quit my dietician. I could like, you know, use more behaviors. I could get myself sent off to residential or a hospital. But I knew deep down at the end of the day, even if all of that happens, that initial wound was still going to be there. And I had to work through it in therapy in order for me to then like work through food with you. It was almost like I had to like, (laughs) I had to like ignore the eating disorder for a little bit because I had to like, I was like, it's not, it's not going to be helpful for me to sit in therapy and talk about my anxiety around food or my body when it's like, this is the core of it. And I almost had to I just stopped being the person with an eating disorder for a second, because sometimes I think professionals and even individuals can get so wrapped up in like, this is a person with an eating disorder. And we need to make sure that they're like checking off these boxes of like, you know, stabilizing their weight or stabilizing their intake and all of those things. And I kind of just had to step back from it. And I think, you know, you gave me a lot of freedom to do that, which my past dietitian hadn't, which just, it didn't work well for me. I needed, I needed the freedom to be able to work on those things and to also trust myself. Like I'll be able to find a way to eat. Like I'm going to learn how to do this eventually. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: And I think, yeah, like dealing with that core wound, you know, I think about, and I think about where you were in recovery, like, you know, at the time and then where you've moved towards now, you were almost on like chapter four, in my opinion, And so it's like kind of closing out some things of moving from, like you said, moving from this space of like weight checks and meal plans and doing all these things. But you're really, you went into the eye of the storm and really confronted what was the deepest, deepest part of what you were dealing with. And I think in in that, you were able to take a step back from, okay, well, maybe I won't need this eating disorder as much anymore, or maybe the voices will shift a little bit or I'll hear the voices and not have to like respond to them as much because you went straight in. And then over time, we can become more and more embodied. Like as you kind of recaptured that and we're working through the deepest, deepest parts, like you said, it's like, okay, well, wait a minute. This isn't my primary thing anymore.
1: Right. Right.
0: And it being less of your identity, it being becoming more of somebody who suffered from an eating disorder rather than like I have an eating disorder and this is a part of my story, and and I really need it to be taken seriously before I walk away from it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think too, you know, why trauma work was so important for me was, and I remember having a conversation with you about this was there is something like there is almost nothing as grounding into your physical self. As like choosing to eat food, yes, like it, like you're so present in your body, like first like responding to the hunger cues, deciding what you're going to make, then sitting down and eating it, and then feeling the fullness afterwards. Like on days when I was having a bad trauma day, that was like that was like a nightmare to me. Like I was like the last thing I want to do is be reminded that I am existing in a, a body, and so like I had to, you know, really work on the the discomfort of physically being in my body. And a lot of that was also then working on trauma, so that it wasn't so horrifying to be reminded of, you know, the physical presence that was my body.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I know we talked through a lot too, of this kind of common humanity. And really, what does that mean is, you know, Even if you are having a bad trauma day and not feeling like any of that matters, or I can't even go there. It's just that on a basic level as another human being, like you deserve to eat and it's a radical Mm -hmm. act of self-care to feed yourself. And then we know from an anxiety standpoint as well, that you're continuing to fuel your brain. You're giving yourself a chance in terms of like energy and nutrients and all these things that our body requires. So that you can continue on doing the mental battles that you were doing
1: every day. Right, right. There's no way I could have done, you know, full blown trauma work when I was not nourishing myself completely. It just took a lot of me being realistic and being like, okay, like I know the only way to make the trauma stuff better is to continue on with trauma work. And I know the only way like I can continue on with like trauma work and being a student and working and all these things is like, I need to be eating. And so I have definitely watched so many TV shows during dinner. Like it was just like finding these little things. I yes. like, how can I distract myself while I'm eating? But yeah, it took a lot of just like, I had to kind of set myself straight and be like, I'm not, I'm not going to lie to myself about this. I'm not going to lie and say that like, oh, it's okay that I'm like, I don't want, like that I'm going to choose not to fuel myself as much on a bad trauma day because like, it doesn't really matter. when I knew, like, okay, this, if I slip into an energy deficit, that's gonna make my trauma brain worse. That's gonna make my eating disorder brain worse. And it's just like I had to be really realistic about what could set off a, a downward spiral and find a way to then work through that. And you did all this despite your weight
0: and not worrying about, oh well, I'm not, you know, this weight or that weight. And it it wasn't easy. And it, I just wanted to highlight that I think that takes extra gumption of like, I, I'm showing up for myself because you fought off those old beliefs that you had. And were like, mm-hmm. I, you know, in order to be hospitalized or in order to be this or that, but you just started to realize that, Hey, like I, I don't want to be sick. You
1: mm-hmm. know, I want right. to be
0: growing of my own accord.
1: Right. Yeah. I started to decide what thoughts I was going to give power to and what I could control. You know, there were some, there were some like eating disorder thoughts that like I couldn't just like blow past and it took more to work on but there were certain ones where it was like nope I'm not even going to go down that road and it eventually got easier I mean we know the brain is teachable and it's you know you got to kind of build it up and so the more I would decide not to buy into the thoughts of like I need to be thicker the easier it was and actually I had to I had to like limit myself from seeking reassurance about it. Cause that would, I like, it would make it worse. Like, cause then it would feel like every time I had those thoughts, it'd be like, oh my God, now I have to go check in. Like I, next session, I I better ask Erica that I really have an eating disorder. Like, can she tell me like one more time? Like, yes, you have an eating disorder. Like I had to like stop myself from doing that because it was like, I was like, maybe maybe I should double check one more time. Right. (laughs)
0: Oh, it was. And reassurance is important and definitely a part of recovery. And I agree that at some point it's like, well, you know, I don't need to have that validated anymore because either way, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to keep on this path. And what would you say to someone who might be listening to this and has dealt with trauma and or has dealt with an eating disorder or. I think more importantly, like a theme of, I think our talk today is also an invitation to anyone who maybe hasn't had an eating disorder diagnosed or, you know, doesn't right. have that like hard and fast thing, but Hey, no matter who you are, like if you're struggling, it's valid and, and hopefully you can seek treatment and get help. But what would you say to someone who, who might be listening?
1: To anyone who's listening, I would invite them to become an active participant in their own life to recognize that you hold the power here. And so, you know, you don't need, you don't need to wait. You get to decide what's bad enough. You don't need to wait for a professional to tell you it's bad enough, you know? And if a professional is telling you it's not bad enough, find a different professional. (laughs) Like, (laughs) bye-bye. I think, yeah, like that is the, that's what really, really helped me in my journey was becoming an active participant in my own life versus being someone that was like, Just along for the miserable ride like (laughs) of being like, no, like I have like you hold authority and power in your own story. And ultimately you get to decide how you want things to continue and how you want things to end. And there's a way out, but ultimately you have to decide that you want a way out.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. This work takes so much courage. And when I say that I admire the people that I work with, I mean it. Because it just really, you know, how many people can overcome something like this and move through all of these difficult issues? It takes, it just takes so much compassion, so much dedication, and so much, frankly, sitting in discomfort and misery, and then continuing to move through it anyways. So Mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you for being here and sharing your story. And I like to always ask people more about kind of where they're headed and what's next. So what is coming next for you?
1: I actually graduate one month from today for my undergrad. And then a month after that, in June, I start graduate school for my master's in social work. So that is what's coming next. The world
0: is going to be better with you in it. So thank you so much. And any, as we part, any joyful food experience that you've had recently that you want to share?
1: Oh, joyful food experience. Jenny's ice cream. Like, I feel like that's all I have to say. Like that's the weather, <laughs> <laughs> the end of story, Jenny's ice cream. Um, but yeah, with the weather being nice, I was like, I feel like I have to go get Jenny's ice cream. And it's just like, it's so delicious. But yeah, I think that's it. Jenny's ice cream, everyone. Oh, the best. I have one better. one reason to leave your disordered being If <laughs> 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 <There's> nothing else. <laughs> oh, thanks again. Until yeah,
0: next time. <laughs> I hope you enjoy this episode. You are always welcome to connect with me, DM me on Instagram, let me know what you think, what you would like to see more of, what you would like to see less of. It's been really nice to connect with people who are in this and you know willing to talk to us about their experiences and showing us that it really is possible to heal our relationship to food, but also demonstrating a lot of the nuances and things that we need to overcome along the way. So with that, I will leave you and look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks to you for listening. Find me on Instagram at Align Nutrition. Let me know if you like this or if you have other topics or ideas for the podcast. I love hearing from you. If you've gotten something out of this, help us reach more people who need this message by subscribing in your podcast app. A nice rating and review also helps us reach more people and is so appreciated. I hope you enjoyed this episode and until next time.